You are listening to the Enormo cast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, out. Out town. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll say, we really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed time with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later. Anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is May 25th, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 2022. And this here is a tweener episode. An in-between episode with Scott Franklin. I used to call these bonus episodes, but frankly, it doesn't make any sense because there's no paywall here at the Enormacast, so nothing is bonus. It's all bonus. It's all free. It's all in your face. You get everything, whether you pay for it or not. So I'm changing the name, the in-between episodes, the tweeners, which was inspired by something that Gene Kistler out in West Virginia said, where most people call roots squeeze jobs. He called them tweeners, the ones that get stuck in between the roots that actually matter. If I'm remembering that correctly. Anyway, it was a while ago. Heard it with my own ears, though. So this is a tweener ep. Scott Franklin recorded an episode. And then, like a lot of modest people do, he got kind of uh, kind of uh, anxious that he uh, talked about himself too much, which I assured him that's what we do here at the Cast. I ask you to talk about yourself. That's what you do. You spray. And anyway, he was a bit uncomfortable with that. So... I offered up a chance for him to talk about other people. So that's what this is. He talks about a whole array of people that he climbed with over the years. The greats. And even after another 45 minutes, we didn't get to everybody. He only barely mentioned Kurt Albert. He didn't mention Wolfgang Gulick, who he climbed with in the Franken era. And I'm sure a whole host of other amazing who's who's from the, uh, from the 80s. Also, I had a chance to get a couple more questions in about the 1988 Snowbird International Climbing Competition, the first competition really staged in uh, the U.S. And also I asked him about soloing Survival of the Fittest, 513. And of course, this tweener is an addendum to Scott's full interview, episode 242. Look back in the feed, Mullets and Mavericks. So probably best to check that one out too. Maybe before this one or maybe right after. Just, Just make a day of it. Spend your whole afternoon with Scott Franklin. You could do worse. Of course, support the sponsors. Donate, if you will. And we'll keep all this stuff out from behind a paywall. All right, Scott Franklin. Spraying about his friends, as any good climber should.
we are back because you heard your episode and you felt as though maybe you'd missed a few people that you wanted to talk about who were influential on you, which is a good place to think about your climbing career is really about the partners and uh, the adventures you got up to with the other people. Yeah, I mean, do you have anything you want to say about that before we get started here? Yeah, you know, I when I listened to that podcast, because we talked about, you know, 20 years of climbing, basically, or whatever. There's a lot of days, a lot of routes, a lot of people, partners, all that. And then I I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even mention, you know, for example, Mo Hershoff, my very first climbing partner, you know, who really, if I hadn't ever met Mo, I would never have been a climber. Um, you know, I remember being, going up to the gunks the very first times by myself, trying to figure out how to climb, you know, how do I find a partner? And I was at the Uber fall where we used to park, you know, right there, there used to be no, just no cars. And you just walk up to the Uber fall where the water, you know, the cup was and Mo saw me and he was like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to climb. And he said, okay, come on, kid. Took me out. So that was, you know, changed everything. But then, um, you know, the other big one that really was so glaring and, and that I didn't mention was Lynn Hill. And, you know, Lynn, um, I met in the gunks, but really we, kind of spent the most time climbing elsewhere. You know, when I was kind of starting climbing, she was married to Russ Rappa, so she was living in the gunks, but we didn't really cross paths there. And we really connected and climbed together a lot more later, you know, especially in Europe. Yeah, it was just kind of glaring to me that I hadn't mentioned Lynn. And then, you know, going down the list, um, another partner I spent just so many, so many days with and so much great time with is Ellie Chevier and then on and on down the line, you know, Darius Azine, right. um, you know, people maybe not as well known as Lynn, of course, but um, yeah, Darius, Jimmy Surratt, who of course is super well known, Wolfgang Gulick, Kurt Albert, you know, guys like that, that I, they were just so central to me of my climbing. I realized, oh, I didn't even mention them. That's kind of weird. So that was my, my reaction. I mean, and it, it's interesting because we did an hour and a half and, and, you know, and we didn't get to all of it because I have a couple other things after I had listened back and edited. I was like, oh, I forgot to ask him about that. But, you know, there is a point at which we just like fucking wrap it up with uh, <laughs> with someone like you, because, I mean, it, it was just this whirlwind of, you know, a solid decade or like you said, 20 years where you climbed over the all over the world and basically with everybody. And I mean, you know, an interesting thing is that if you did get around and you know we're climbing at the level you were climbing at it was such a elite group of people it was kind of like you know almost inevitable that you would run into each other and climb with each other you know it wasn't like you could just climb at that level with any any old person so um it stands the reason you ra ran into these people but let's talk about a couple of those names you just mentioned um i mean you're climbing with lynn hill at the height of her powers as well, you know? And uh, so just kind of maybe tell me what that was like, um, if you can, if it can be that broad and, and sort of like, you know, what she just kind of blew you away with or brought to the table as far as, as a partner for you on um, the kind of things you were getting into. Yeah. I think um, Lynn, especially at that time, you know, the early nineties, um, late eighties, early nineties, I'm 100% convinced she was the best climber in the world. No question about it. Um, she may not have been doing the highest level routes like Wolfgang at that time had done Action Direct and stuff like that. And, you know, really pushing the highest level. But 
um, as far as all around climbing and just climbing ability, she was far and away the best, you know, and that's even with people like Patrick and Langer, who was really at his peak as well. And Stefan Glovach and some really incredible climbers, Katrin Destaval, you know, but Lim was like definitely kind of head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of just ability to, well, especially onside climbing, you know, it's just untouchable. And, you know, I really feel like even to this day, <clears throat> I think she's probably one of the greatest climbers of all time. You know, her achievements and somehow were so understated in a way because she just did it. And it was like, right, of course, Lynn did that. Now you look back, for example, the nose. It was, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years ahead of her time, maybe more. I don't even know. You know, she's just way out in front. The cool thing about Lynn, too, is, I mean, she does like get that punctuation point of you know having freed the nose and it's like even before she did that she probably as you said was the best climber in the world and and you know talking about my 80s thing it's like she could have just you know disappeared into sort of the obscurity that the 80s kind of seemed to have disappeared into but then she did that and it's like it's kind of like the you know the michael jordan debate of like well who's the best yeah but this this guy has this and this guy has this. And then at the end of the game, you know, with Lynn Hill, it's like she fucking freed the nose in yeah, a day, exactly. you know, like, like a decade before anybody was even trying to think about to, trying to repeat it, you know? And the thing that's interesting you said about like, Oh, it was Lynn. Of course she did kind of thing. I think that also put the sort of stigma on like, well, yeah, somebody freed the nose, but it was Lynn Hill. So I'm not going to try it. You know, it's, it was just kind of like she did that and then everybody was like it wasn't like one of these things that opened the door it was like everybody else was like okay well that was lynn so it it doesn't count count, it doesn't even mean that it's actually free (laughs) just because she could do it doesn't mean anybody else right right yeah right no i think she's it's just an interesting interesting. you know for sure she's in her own zone and then you know actually lynn the other person who spent so much time with become just a fantastic and one of our best friends is Robin Irvisfield. You know, Robin and Lynn were really, they mm-hmm. were very tight. Of course, they had, they were like kind of genetic copies of each other, more or less, you know, very small, very strong um, women, fierce, determined and all that stuff. And, you know, the little difference though, Lynn was way more, I'd say rounded climber, a lot more experienced, you know, big walls and, and track climbing. Robin's real focused on sport climbing. But uh, yeah, Lynn was definitely in her own zone there. What kind of stuff did you guys do together? Well, I think like you were just saying, though, you know, at that, that time, like the late 80s, you know, sport climbing, especially in the US and even in Europe, was it was really taking off. So all the kind of the hot spots were, there weren't that many. And it was always the same kind of cast of characters that would show up. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to Volks in southern France, you would see everybody. Like if you went there, you right. were going to be climbing with, you know, maybe Mark Lemonestrel, maybe um, Patrick would be there, maybe, uh, you know, Francois Legrand or Yuji Hiroyama. You know, that's where everybody would go. And that would be the crowd to be training at, you know. So, the the kind of hot spots were kind of consolidated. Now there's just so many crags and so many places, like, and there's so many more people. It's just a completely different dynamic. But like you know that crew of people that I was you know climbing with, we're just kind of circle around. You know we'd be okay. We're going to be in Smith Rock in the fall, and we're going to go to 
you know, France in the spring, that kind of thing. So you just be, you'd be circling with the same people. So with Lynn, it wouldn't be mm-hmm. so much, um, you know, I'd never climbed any big walls with Lynn, but we definitely went, we sport climbed together a lot. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because it's like, yeah, Bukes, Volks, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, the Frankenura exactly. would get sort of hot at times. And, and yeah, I can only imagine that you guys were, you know, sort of a traveling circus of a handful of the best climbers showing up at the right season in these places to uh, to check them out. You yeah, know? it was definitely more like that. You know, it was a much smaller crew. So we always knew who, you know, basically who was out there. So another men- name you mentioned, which is I think fascinating, because I actually tried to I tried to track him down a couple years ago, and actually ended up on an Instagram uh, account of a photographer with the same name. And this is I'm talking about Ellie Chev- Chevreau, yeah. or the, you you pronounce <laughs> yeah. it better, Chevreau. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I ended up on his account, and the guy's like, oh yeah, you. Th- I, I kind of messaged him, and he's like, oh yeah, people think I'm this climber guy. I don't know who you're talking about, but. Um, we had like a little conversation about how I wasn't the first uh-huh. person to like mistake him for the climber. Um, but yeah, that that's where it ended. I couldn't really track him down because I was fascinated. But um, yeah, I mean, tell me a little bit about that guy. And, and uh, again, like what sort of he brought to the table. I remember, I mean, legend was, is he, wasn't he the first 14A yeah, on site? Yeah, I think so. Massey Ferguson was it? What's the uh, name of the room? I don't remember the name. I think it's in the Klonk. Some big long, yeah, super steep. Okay, thing, yeah. yeah. And um, you know, I think Ellie is. Uh, he was definitely one of the most talented climbers I've ever ever climbed with, and uh, he just naturally gifted. You know, super strong fingers and all that. But I think the biggest thing with him was he had this sort of lightness and way of like he just he didn't fuck around. You know, he he wasn't like hold on a hold and decide should I go my left or right he just like do it you know no hesitation mm-hmm. definitely the fastest climber you've ever seen like literally like a split second decisions and yeah just amazing to watch you know looked quite easy really it wasn't a lot of fanfare how he does stuff but just because he's so fast super mm-hmm. talented and just you know really more than anything like climbing for him was just part of his life it wasn't everything he's a real um I don't know how you'd say, like, he's just a real free spirit, you know, into traveling and just meeting people and seeing things. I remember, um, you know, one year he was climbing super strong. I can't remember. He might have won Arco. I forget. He was like, you know, really at the top of the game. He's like, you know, I'm just going to take some time off and I want to take the um, India Express or whatever the train is that goes across India. And he did. So he took his, he had a little tiny briefcase. Imagine like a little old school briefcase had some art supplies and stuff in it, his guitar and small backpack, you know, tiny backpack. And then spent basically like six months traveling around India all by himself. So a little different. Yeah. And he's, I think then he became a, a photojournalist of note. Um, and there was even a moment where um, it was reported that he was killed. Unfortunately, I mean, it, it's, it's like, not really an amusing story because someone actually had been killed. It just yeah, wasn't, it wasn't him. He wasn't a photojournalist. Um, in, in Afghanistan he, he or something He wasn't a like photojournalist. Mm. He was just traveling, doing what he did, which is just traveling. Just traveling. Yeah. So for him, climbing was like something you did. It wasn't the only thing. Like sometimes you go somewhere to climb, sometimes you just go there to just be there, you know. And he was traveling all around Iran, Iraq, northern, you know, Kurdistan, all these places that, you know, were not on the chip, traditional uh tourist hotspots, you know, if you will. And uh, he was with a group of a couple other Swiss guys. And yeah, there was a 
you know, kidnapping and a murder. And uh, his mom got the call from the Swiss embassy saying, you know, we're so sorry to inform you that, you know, your your son was taken, et cetera. And then it all turned out to be wrong. He was not that guy. And exactly the said, Mm -hmm. there was a Swiss national that was murdered and kidnapped. It was not Ellie. And he just had not, he was out of, you know, there's a pre-cell phones and there was no internet. So he was just out there doing his thing. And then when he kind of got back to like, contact with you know the west he had no idea he was like hey how's it going mom and she's like oh my god you're okay right and the whole rest of the world did because we all thought he was dead because yeah it rose to the level of climbing like i mean um i don't know if it was totally pre-internet but it was uh it got into everybody's head um in in the climbing world too so it, it you know which which probably took a little while so yeah he was probably um, yeah, it's, it's, it was kind of a wild story, but, um, you know, and again, not somebody that I think a lot of folks these days, you know, historically remember, no. but, um, he made his splash. Yeah. You know? He's, he was the most under the radar climber you ever met. Like if you met up the crowd, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even notice him. You know, just quiet, skinny guy, you know, really low key, super friendly, super fun. I mean, just incredible. Yeah. Last, uh, two years ago, he came spent a year in the states traveling with his he's got two kids now and um his girlfriend the baby with and um they spent a year here and you know they'd spend a couple months at our house and then they'd leave and they bought a van they'd travel around they came back and spend another couple months so it was super nice fun seeing with kids still climbing you know like super off the couch you know on siding 513 like it's nothing and and just like literally off the couch, like not climbing for months and months and just like, hey, let's go, let's go out. And, you know, it just has a great day and amazing individual. So I was thinking about your contemporaries again, you know, especially sort of le- a little bit later after the the gunks and, and kind of, you know, you're, you're coming onto the scene sort of as a professional. But um, another name that jumped up too was, uh, was Jason and Jim Carn. <laughs> Uh, specifically, I mean, I was thinking about Jim Carn, but then Jason. you mentioned that you climbed actually more with his brother yeah. Jason, which of course makes sense because of up in Oregon there and and that that kind of scene. So uh, again, you know, those guys were also part of this like first wave of sport climbers. You know, Jim being very famous for you know his temper <laughs> and his temperament. Um, I think at least around the you know from the rifle yeah, days and everywhere. things like that. But, <laughs> I think uh, everywhere. Um, yeah. yeah, everywhere. And, and and I think like it's interesting because you know it was this era where like the sport climbers were kind of like trying on this sort of punk rock mantle of like breaking the rules and you know Boone Speed was and his crew was kind of in that mode too of just like well if you know if we're gonna be labeled as sort of enemy number one then we're gonna mm, act like mm-hmm. it kind of thing. And so it's just kind of like it reminds me of that early 90s era, um, not only, you know, up, up where you were at Smith at the time, but also, um, you know, in Rifle and you, you came down to Rifle as well and started putting up roots there. And for Colorado, like Rifle became the epicenter of that, like, you know, fuck you, I'm going to sport climb, <laughs> right. put bolts in whether you like right. it kind of scene. So, yeah, talk a little bit about climbing with those guys and, and, uh, and, and again, you know, what your, what your influence from them were. Well, you know, I knew, I met Jason, I'm sorry, Jim, because Jim and Jason are from Ohio. And I think Jim started climbing kind of in, in Ohio, but he definitely came to the gunks. And we, we kind of crossed paths a little bit there, but not ever really directly. But, you know, we became good friends and we spent a lot of time together. You know, when, when Smith Rock really started 
kind of that scene started taking off in the kind of late 80s, you know, when back to what we talked about before was Gibay coming and the French, and then we all started showing up there and, and, and trying to repeat roots and do new things. And so I really got to spend a lot of time with Jim, and he was also really focused on competitions and really the the pure athletic side of sport climbing and, and really trying to perform and, and all that. And I think Jim and I were like probably the most, you know, we were like the 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 pair, you know. I he was like the used to the you know, like you said, his temper, he could be pretty strong and uh, you know, his like nicknames like the Dark Prince and stuff like that. He had this sort of like persona of a, this really menacing, you know, figure. <laughs> it's pretty fun. It's funny to think back. Um he really used to like to he'd say like the I think his line was the positive the power of negative thinking or the positive aspects of negative thinking stuff like that you know so he was all about trying to harness negativity essentially (laughs) but he was uh i mean incredibly focused strong just incredible climber really he could really just turn it on and um his brother jason was very different you know jason and i and my wife gia you know at the time we were we were like peas in a pod. I mean, Jason, we just sort of took Jason as like our, our younger brother because he was way more personality-wise. I think we got along great. You know, he wasn't so much of a negative thinker and, you know, it wasn't to the menacing thing. He's just a very easygoing guy and also <laughs> incredibly talented climber, like mind-blowing talent, but wasn't as focused, you know, didn't really, wasn't driven to like, I need to succeed. I want to be the top of the game. He didn't care. You know, he just liked to climb and push himself and do stuff. And he's a lot more like Ellie, you know, really talented, very fluid, easygoing guy. And, you know, could take it or leave it. Didn't didn't care, you know, and um, sweetest guy ever. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time with those guys. Very different interactions with both, you know. It's interesting to know that that um, Jason Karn, you know, is is a little bit different of a personality because I I did actually kind of think about you and Jim as being a bit on the polar opposites of, of, of that sort of style anyway, of, of looking at climbing and stuff like that, at least after talking an hour and a half, <laughs> um, I was like, how did those guys hang out? But you know, you yeah, find common sure. ground in, in climbing one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned, um, a name that I actually don't recognize. So we might as well drop into that as, uh, Darius oh, Azine. Darius. You tell me, I mean, who is that? It's not even, yeah, in, you know, I pride myself in, in knowing all I these know. obscure I'm, 80s I'm climbers dis- so, or I'm 90s climbers. I'm a little disappointed, climbers, so. Chris. I can't believe you never Dar- <laughs> All right. Well, uh, all right. Enlighten so me. Darius is also, he's kind of like an underground legend. I think, you know, there's a certain generation of people that he was like one of the most influential people in their lives. You know, he started people climbing. He was um, from Arizona, actually kind of grew up climbing with Bobby Benzman. Also incredibly talented, very skinny, tall guy. I don't even remember where we met. I think he actually, Jordan met him when Jordan came out to Colorado very young when he first started climbing and they met and he kind of became a mentor. And then we kind of, when we all started coming out to the West, we met Darius and became, you know, became one of my best friends. Um, Darius was like a real dirtbag climber, like van life before van life was cool and just travel around climbing. And we know, same, we spend just days and days and days at the crag together. He used to have like a kind of a bright red, not really a mohawk, but like imagine the candy red hair. He'd go down to Smith Rock 
with like a long trench coat on with like a four foot bong under his trench coat. You know, so it kind of give you an idea of what his general look was like. Um, <laughs> he'd have like an army surplus backpack and then it could like climb harder than everybody, you know, just looks super easy. And then Darius actually was kind of living that life. And he was like kind of always on the fence about should I push into like try and become a professional climber in full time? And I think he finally decided like, you know, I don't really, it's not life for me. I, I want to, I'm going to go and get my degree and become a surgeon. And we were all like, what? I said, yeah, I'm going to become a surgeon. Now, this is a guy living like in a <laughs> 1972 Volkswagen van. You know, like I said, imagine the bright red hair. You know, it's, it was the hardest thing to imagine, probably. If, unless he said he was going to be like a, you know, congressman, maybe it would be the, even less likely. But um, yeah, he said, I'm going to become a surgeon. And he said, and then he did. He went back to school, finished his degree, <laughs> all went through med school, became a vascular surgeon and did it. So there you go. That's Darius. Yeah. Just, you never know. I just Googled him real quick. It looks like he's maybe still out there climbing. I'm sure he is. You know, there's nice. like, I think I feel like I'm one of them too. And I think there's a lot of people that are just lifers, you know, like that's just, it's just what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, even if we're, you know, not, a, not super strong and um, not like fit like the old days, still super fun. Yeah. I, I just imagine that it, I'm going to get, and now I'm inviting it. I'm going to get a text from some some friend or some sort of like mentee uh -huh. of Darius is that's going to be like, dude, you got to talk to him. I'll get him for you. I got his phone number oh, right he's here. He's a character, man. You, you, you should. <laughs> so, and, yeah. so bring it on. I want to talk you to this should. guy. You <laughs> should. And he is, he's an amazing, amazing guy. And um, he will have something to say for sure. Yeah. Right on. Um, well, cool. I, I, uh, I, I love learning new stuff, so I got to find out. I really, honestly, and as, as like unique as that name is too, I, it seems like I would have known it, but anyhow, but, um, I have a couple, couple things I want you to fill in, um, before we shut down here on the, uh, on this little extra app is, um, I didn't ask you about Snowbird <laughs> because again, this is like this seminal thing in history that I don't know, it's, it's kind of a, it's sort of a, a like a trivia question in climbing, even though, you know, it was the first climbing, like real big climbing competition. And it also, you know, rose to the level of being on CBS Sports, I believe, one of the one of the networks, which, you know, we have to inform young people that there used to be only three television channels, blah, 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 blah. And the sports, you know, like the sports stuff was was heavy. So it's like a big deal for a, a network to to show this thing and you know, all the best climbers in the country were there and the world really by invite, I guess. And, uh, you know, David Lee Roth was there in the audience and, um, you know, Lynn was there and Patrick right. was there and you were there and Ron Kauk was there and which is just a crazy yeah. mix when you think about like yeah, competition yeah. climbing now, like Ron Kauk in a competition. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that, like getting invited to it and, and just like, was it sort of this weird sideshow or did it feel important to you at the time? I, you know, it's, it's all that. And I think, um, you know, when that was sort of bubbling up and, you know, the invitation was, was sent out and, you know, the, the news was coming, Jeff Lowe was putting on this big event and it was going to be at Snowbird and all the, you know, like you said, the TV and all the stuff, there was, it was a lot of mixed things for me personally. You know, I was like, I had just done Scarface, I think. And, you know, I was really into climbing and rock climbing and just traveling around. And then this, I never even thought about the idea of like a a plastic wall competition. I knew there was like that stuff happening in Europe. 
I think at that point there was Barnekia, it was still like an outdoor comp, you know, they had it on Real Rock. So I feel like mm-hmm. this was just sort of starting the, the the plastic wall thing. And definitely mixed feelings, you know, going into it. I was excited about, you know, the visibility for the sport and like becoming, you know, mainstream in a way, because that's sort of exciting. But also mix like, oh my God, I don't for one, I'd have to go down to Utah now and take, you know, 10 days out of our you know, whole climbing time to like go do this thing. And then, um, you know, also realizing like, oh my God, everybody's, because as soon as we got, I got invited, you know, the phone calls and people asking, so what do you think? And how's this and that? And how are we going to do? And all these things I realized, oh my God, people are expecting me to like do really well. And, you know, this pressure started building up about, Oh well, you know you're you're gonna win, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and you know, like that kind of lead up to it. So it was it was mixed. I was exciting and fun, and you know, also really stressful. And yeah, I'd say when I think back on it, it wasn't um, a moment of like that was like the pinnacle of my climbing times, and I wish we could do that again. It was more <laughs> like, oh my god, what a nightmare. It was just so much stress and so much build up. And to me, you know, now now I have the luxury of you want to look back, you know, over all these years and go, you know, what would you would you do it again? I definitely would have said no. You know, in, in hindsight, oh, really? when Jeff called up and said, Hey, we're gonna do this thing, I would have said, Yeah, I'm gonna pass. And, you know, that's not what I'm interested. In. That's not why I climb, it's not what I'm interested to do. But, you know, obviously I didn't choose that path and I I actually got pulled into it pretty hard because I thought, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. If you know, my sponsors need me to be representing and participating in this. This is the direction we're going. So I don't know. It just was the beginning of a, a long series of competitions and, and being kind of pulled into that world, really. Well, it's interesting because I mean, this is 1988, so it was like it was way ahead of its time. It was actually too ahead of its time, um, in in some ways. Like you know climbing competitions kept going and, and creeping along but it, it definitely did not like burst <laughs> no, it onto no. the scene no <laughs> then you know that one afternoon and sunday on a sunday when exactly. it was on television yeah. for a minute but it's interesting to realize like someone like you and, and actually almost everybody you know it's not like you could prepare in any way i mean climbing climbing on artificial holds was was barely a thing you know like probably entrepreneur were making them and there was a handful of walls and stuff and so it's not like you know, you were thrust onto this thing and then it's this, basically it's interesting because it's the route was like vertical with a roof in it, even slabby at times, the super sparse, like tiny yeah, yeah. climbing <laughs> that was like, you know, and then watching it. Cause you can actually see it on YouTube. I'll link it uh, in, in this post, but you know, watching Patrick who, you know, who won the comp actually, which is, was kind of yeah, very tailish. He, he got the highest and was one of the later competitors to go. So it was pretty dramatic, but I mean, but also watching him climb it, it was like, he was the guy who was prepared for that. For style sure. of climbing, Like beyond anybody else. Like, cause that was his, like his jam, you know, and the Verdon and stuff well, like that. So plus pretty, he was that part of it was pretty cool. Climber. Let's be clear. I mean, he, you know, at that yeah. time he was, he was at the top of his game and the guy was, he's a mutant. So let's just be fair. It wasn't that the route was good for him. He was yeah. like, any route was going to be good for him. <laughs> Yeah. So the way you saw there um, was him demonstrating right. how much better he was than everybody else. That's all that was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
totally. Um, that's killer. All right. My other question, one more story that I didn't really talk about in something that I think comes up in your resume, whether you like it or not, is, uh, is soloing survival <laughs> of the fittest. Um, so, which is a route you, you established to begin with. Um, and then at some point you decided that, uh, climbing it without a rope was a good idea. So, um, tell <laughs> that me sounds a little, really I mean, good like I said, you it, put that. Yeah. <laughs> Really it's like uh you know, it's definitely judgment. like one yeah, of your exactly. greatest hits yeah and that was your conclusion and, um, so it's going to get brought up sure. whether you like it or not so tell me a little bit about uh who you were at the time and and that decision um to to climb something that hard um without a rope on well you know like at that time i was you know there wasn't the whole big scene so we were really still like in the gunks and traveling you know, a little bit to g tree and stuff in the winters but really hadn't been like out and about that much, but I had already, I don't know, just committed myself to climbing. And, you know, when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, I'm going to be into climbing. I, I was like all in, like that was my, my chosen, I don't even know what the word is, you know, it was, it was my way of life. I was going to pursue climbing and really just kind of perfect that, that art and just devote myself to it. So that was the mindset I was in and, you know, trying to figure out how to like, how to do that. And, you know, the gunks was a great spot for, you know, at least being not a lot of distraction as far as like, you know, outside influence, we were kind of in our own world. So kind of developed something that was sort of, I don't know what we thought was possible and correct and, and normal somehow. So the, the genesis of like solo and survival was, you know, I put survival up and then it quickly became like a top rope thing because if you ever come to gunks, a lot of the roots are, they're small or easy to get to the top of, you know, leading them is, they're definitely good leads, but they're short and there's really well set up for top roping. It's just real popular there. And so survival became a really popular top rope route. People just go there and climb around on that, that they call it the persistence block and um, do the roots there. So we had been doing that route a lot to, you know, get stronger and get fitter and then looking at other roots around there on that same wall. And through that process, you know, the, the topic kind of in our talking about it was like, oh, well, you know, should solo it now because clearly can do it without falling, you know, up. You know, I think I tried to climb it blindfolded even at one point. I don't know if I ever did, but, you know, that's how level of how much we had climbed it, you know, over that last, <laughs> since the time I set it, put it up and, you know, then started climbing it quite a bit. So it just kind of became this idea, like the idea of like soloing it evolved from climbing it quite a bit. And then, um, you know, I didn't have any other, I had a couple other projects I was working on in the gunks at that time. One on that wall to the left, I think it was, it was called Planet Claire. And then I feel like there was another one. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then, and then the idea of survival was out there for me. Like, you know, these, and I, what I would do is, my own mental process, I kind of like have an idea of a project to kind of get into. And then I just sort of focus on it. So that seed was planted, right? The idea of slow and survival. And then I, I just couldn't really get out of my head. And I realized it was kind of an interesting question because I knew I could climb it. Like physically, I could go up, but no problem. You know, it was not an issue. And then I realized, oh, that's kind of an interesting test, if you will. Or can I do it without a rope. Am I confident enough to like, you know, can I be focused and just do this thing? So I just, like I said, I couldn't really let go of that idea and I stuck with it. And finally, 
And honestly, I can't remember when I did it. I want to say, I know all I remember was it was really, really cold, like crazy cold. And um, my girlfriend at the time, Katy Beloya, French girl, you know, she knew I was kind of like, she could tell I was gearing up to do it. And then one day I was like, okay, we're, we're going there. And um, so just the two of us drove out there and, um, you know, she's like, okay, Katy. You know, you can take pictures, but, um, you know, here we go. And then I, and I did it. And uh, then I remember, you know, I remember it was this crazy cold day because even after we did it, we went back to town. Um, I was like just kind of almost you know, kind of like quivering. I was so excited, you know, so psyched. And I remember walking down, you know, Main Street in New Paltz and I saw Al, my, you know, one of my best buddies, and telling him I just did it. And, you know, it was, it was fun because he could really understand what that was and what, what it meant because we, you know, been part of that process from the beginning of putting the root up and everything. So, yeah, it was, it was um, kind of, it was really a mental challenge, I think, more than anything, right? It wasn't a solo shouldn't be physical challenges, I don't think, unless you're like Mark Andre Leclerc right. or something like that. But, you know, for me, soloing was like, it was all about the mental game and trying to, you know, be able to, function without um you know losing losing your mind was soloing something you did elsewhere i mean was it something like that was in your bag um as far as doing easier routes yeah or whatever? i you know something about the gunks is also really a lot, a lot of soloing there because for one the rock is super solid so it really lends itself to it and that kind of climbing mm-hmm. it's it's friendly for that and yeah we used to do a lot of you know we used to have like the solo train it'd be like four of us, five of us, just cruising around, going up and down all over the gunks and the traps and near traps. So we did a lot of soloing. And and sometimes I would do, you know, I definitely have, you know, solo days by myself. And really, like, I wouldn't ever do things that I felt like scared, you know, or, or really pushing mm-hmm. it, you know, maybe a little tiny bits, but never really too hard. And survival was more of, um, I don't know, it was like an ex- just almost like a thought exercise. Like, could I do this? Does it, you know, and I went through it that way. Right. So I'd never, it wasn't like I worked up from, you know, I'm going to do 510s, I'm going to do a 511, I'm going to do 512. It wasn't like that. It was more like I, I had my kind of normal solo routines I would do. And then survival was its own thing. I, I wasn't intending to build a career soloing hard roots. Do you remember how you finally felt on it? Was it just, you were, you had it in Completely hand? Completely in hand. You know, could you feel the energy? What what yeah, was it like? I remember it feeling um, like a lot of things, you know, in climbing where you, the buildup and the, the leading up to it's almost the scariest thing. And then when you actually commit and you step out and do it, it's actually okay. It, that, I remember that feeling of like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, the thing about survival, I don't know if you've ever been there or nothing about that block, but the way you start the route is you kind of lean across this little chasm and grab the wall. So you... You know, you for me, it's kind of a bit of a stretch, and I I don't think I can really push back to the block once I commit and get onto the wall. I have to I have to jump <laughs> off to get back to the block. You know, there's a you'd fall straight down the chasm. It would be right. Uh, you, I don't know if you die, but it would be a mess. You'd be you'd be pretty broken. So anyway, I I remember once you once I committed and stepped off, it was it was fine. I was like as I had done it probably a hundred times, super focused. You know, I just executed it. And, you know, thankfully, it's a route where there's not like places where you hang out, you know, where you can start thinking about stuff. 
So you just kind of execute the route. You know, it's very, <laughs> it's kind of a resistance style thing where it's not really, there's no super hard moves, but there's no, there's no rest either. So you just climb it steady and, and it's short. And then, you know, I remember getting the top and realizing I was like fully shaking. I'm like, oh my God, I just did that. And I'm freezing too. It's super cold. And, you know, right. that combination. So yeah, things like that. Cool. Well, let me ask you one last thing, then we'll wrap up. We'll finish up with a good, solid Jerry oh, Moffat God. story, because that's another guy you mentioned climbing with. Jerry Moffat is like, I am just so glad I got to meet him and get to spend some time with him. Just a really unique character, super funny, also incredibly talented. Jerry's talent wasn't his physical ability. He was super strong and coordinated climber, all that, but his, his unique special power superpower was his focus and tenacity and jerry really clued me into like how important that was and and what you know his whole focus was on that moment of when you're about to fall what what do you do then and that and i really think and i that it is the key moment right do you do you bear down further and focus and grab that next hold or do you succumb you know, and you just like melt off. And Jerry was one of the best onsite climbers, you know, ever. And he was doing routes on site, kind of like land, they're just way, way ahead of his time, you know. And he would be just sketchy, shaking, you know, but would not let go. Just tenacity, super go for it. Really amazing. But yeah, one great story I got from Jerry, actually, this is this is good. And hopefully he'll hear this because if you can ever get to blow Jerry off and blow his face off, you've got to talk about it as much as you can. And that was very rare because he's such a good climber. But he came, you know, we were in the gunks together. He visited, we were climbing together in France and then he was going to come to the U.S. So we, we, we came together to the gunks because we wanted to do a tour there. He'd never been there. And then we we're going to go to Smith Rock and do other stuff. But we stopped in the gunks and I had put up a route called the Cybernetic Wall, which is a really incredible piece of rock in Bontecue, Crag, um, kind of not not in the real traditional gunks, but kind of closer to town. Anyway, um, it's a short, steep, um, perfect quartz boulder, basically with like a crack going up about, I don't know, 30 feet, and then a kind of a hard boulder problem, but it's really steep white wall. Anyway, the bottom of this crack has a, kind of a boulder problem. It's not a real finger lock, but a, a very weird hole that we used to call the pinky scum because you'd kind of get this thumbs up jam, but I could just kind of get my pinky in a certain way and, you know, it was fine. But some people had a really hard time, it didn't fit in well and like that would stop people. You know, it's like 10 feet off the ground. So it's kind of embarrassing. You can't even get you know, off the ground basically. Anyway, Jerry wanted to do the cybernetic wall. I'm like, great, we'll come play you and give it a try. He couldn't do that move. He couldn't get past the pinky scum. And when he first fell off the pinky, I was laughing. I was like, you know, just like, are you kidding me? You can't do that move. And then he started getting pissed. Like, what do you mean? What are you laughing at me? You know, this is super hard. I can't do it. I'm like, dude, I can dangle off that hold. And then he was getting, this is, you got to understand, like Jerry's like, he, if he wasn't the best climber in the world that time, he definitely thought he was. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't, he didn't take it lightly that anybody could do anything better than him, you know, it was, and in a good natured way, but he was super competitive. So, you know, I was with Jordan now, we're all there. And um, yeah, I was like, yeah, no, I, I can totally dangle off that hole. What are you talking about? It's no problem. And then he's getting really frustrated, trying it, trying it, trying it. And then 
I said, let me just go. I'll just boulder up there and I'll show you if I dangle off. And he's like, if you can do that, I'll, I'll take you out for dinner tonight. And I'm like, okay, dude, no problem. And I and I went up and did it because it just fits me perfectly. I grabbed the hold. I like show him like dead hang off of it. And then he just like flipped out, you know. And then he figured out how to do it. He used, he harnessed the power of rage and competition. And he, he like kind of, he didn't even use the picky scam. He kind of like underclaimed. He did something really weird, but just used like massive excess of power and got through it and eventually did the route. Uh, but it was a, it's a great story for Jerry Moffat because, like I said, if you ever have a chance to, you know, blow him off on anything, you have to celebrate that moment because it's, it's going to be rare. Yeah, the last thing I wanted to say is kind of probably the most important thing was that really what I was thinking about in this whole discussion is really the most important person in my entire climbing career, far and away, is my wife, Gia Franklin. Um, she is, you know, we always call her Wonder Woman. She's like the sun that our whole family revolves around, you know, orbits around. Um, but more than that, like, you know, as far as my climbing goes, she's definitely my most, um, my, my favorite partner. We've climbed together the most, more than anybody I have my whole life. We've done the most varied things together. She's not a big trad climber, doesn't like climbing the mountains, doesn't like skiing that much, but sport climbing 100%. And, uh, but she's definitely been the most influential and supportive of my climbing. She's been my coach. She's, you know, the one that kind of like really keep me on the on the straight and narrow path. I'm super grateful. I mean, she had a career of her own, right? You know, back in the day. I mean, people will not know this, but um, she was the stunt double in the beginning of Cliffhanger that takes the giant whipper when the harness breaks. Is it that is. Right? Yeah, no, she was, you know, she's a lot like Ellie and Jason. She's a super talented climber, super focused, super go for it. But she was always pretty low key and she was never a, you mm -hmm. know, hey, look at me kind of person. She just did her thing and super strong climber. She was a dancer, just she's beautiful climber to watch. You know, she's got it. She's got it going on. And um, still does, you know, we still climb together all the time. She's totally into it. It's funny because I, again, after we just talked now for whatever, two hours, and I realized, oh, it's like, it's just like the sun. You know, the sun comes up every day. I don't mention it to her like, hey, Gia, look, the sun's coming up. It's like, you don't even say anything. And the same thing with Gia is like, I am alive and she is, so therefore we climb, you know. So I feel like I realized, oh, that's why I didn't even mention it because like, of course, she's been in every discussion every climbing trip you know basically ever since we met and um anyway i just want to make sure you know her of all the people that i forget to mention in this discussion you know ironically the person the least mentioned was the most important <laughs> Let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. People let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. People let me tell you about my best friend. 